standing ovation from you? You're not faking it? You can leave early then. But hello, everyone. Last time I preached on a Sunday morning, the following week, church was canceled for a couple months. Everybody remember? I preached that last Sunday morning service. Some people blame COVID. The rest of you blame me. If there is no church next week, I am the church killer. Hopefully not. I am uh, glad to be here. Uh, Lord, uh, we're going to pray in a little bit to open this up. We're continuing Pastor's series, series on family matters. But I've got a special, I don't know if they got that. I'm actually calling this part of Family Matters Family Circus. And in starting this, I just, Lord changed my message this morning, the direction. Still same topic, different direction. So bear with me. If you notice by my notes, all the red writing and stuff, that means a lot's changed. So longer, shorter, I can't tell you. If it goes long, blame God. Um, this is a difficult, this, we're going to have fun, I hope, in here. But this is also a very serious matter, family matters. And before I start, we all come from different situations, different narratives. Some of you grew up in what you would probably consider great families. This message is still for you. Some of you grew up in families that were, depending on the season, could be good, could be challenging. And I want to respect those of you that might be sitting in here, and this is where God's kind of tweaked my message a little bit, because I believe there are people here, and that's great knowledge, there are people in here whose family situations, it's kind of like when a preacher gets up, someone has a headache, someone's got a bad back, you know, it's usually there is. But unfortunately, there are some people in here who came from situations to where circus is not doing a justice for what you grew up in or what you may be presently in. This message definitely is for you. There may be some people in here right now, you are even questioning whether you should run away from the circus that you were in. Now, the, the importance of this message is we have got to work on ourselves, let God direct us, let God guide us, let God change our narrative. Because if you don't, you could run away from that circus and you're just going to run away to another circus. I, I, I tell my clients that come to see me, for, there might be new people here, I'm a therapist. I'm an ordained minister, but I'm also a therapist. I said God changed direction my message. Therapists can move by the Spirit. We're not all godless. Thank you for that. I tell my ther uh, clients sometimes, when they come to me about their family circus, I always say, well, the question is not why you keep watching those clowns in the circus. The question really is, why do you keep buying tickets to it? Now, when we do family therapy, I did a family therapy session yesterday. I always do this, come up with your own role in your family that you meet. Now, some of you are going to start thinking with this circus theme, who's the clown in my family? Who's the person who sticks his head into the lion's mouth? Who's the ringleader and all that? If you're having a hard time figuring out who the clown is in the room, it's probably you. 
Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you right now because not a typical message, but family matters to you. It's at the heart of many of our lives right now. How goes our family goes pretty much how our day goes, our week goes, our month goes, our year goes. And Lord, I just pray right now as you guide this message, your spirit's in control, not just with who's speaking it, but who's receiving it as well. Lord, just I pray for those that are in situations that are under attack. That seems like a circus out of control. That seems like maybe they're drowning in a family situation. Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would start to speak to them. No, there's a lifeline. No, there's a solid ground to stand upon that they can do if they look to you. Lord, we ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. I'm going to be going back and forth between minister and therapist. Is that okay? Everything I do is biblically backed up. But I make no apologies for being a therapist. All right? I've been a pastor, been associate pastor. And Lord help me, I was a youth pastor for a while. This message isn't just about parents towards children. It isn't even just about children towards parents. And it's not just about husbands towards wives and vice versa. At the heart of this is relationship. But the theme of this series that pastor's doing is family matters. So that's kind of the direction we're going to go with this. But family does matter. Many times we focus on the dangers coming from outside in the world towards our family, we miss that the inner dangers that come from within inside our families. And we get blinded to them. Now, I'm not denying that there aren't outside forces out in the secular world that are threatening our families. I'm, I'm not here to question that. But that's another sermon. This is a sermon of what can I do in my family matter situation to help me. Let's look at this wonderful story of this family in Genesis chapter 25, starting with verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childish, childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, the two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated, and one people will be stronger than the other. And the older, this is the verse I always quoted to my older brother, and the older will serve the younger. Babies in the, who's babies in the house? Baby kids, siblings. We rock. Anyway, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. 
but Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, I'm going to stop there with the story. Many of you know this story. Now, as a therapist, I watch this story. There's so much to unpack here. This is the beginning of a dysfunctional family. Now, some of it's not their fault, some of it's their fault. You're looking at two boys, you're completely opposite in personality. But their parents did not handle that well. You had favoritism. You had a, a strive for superiority, which we're going to get into. We had, they were beginning their fighting in their mother's womb. And we have a family set up in a situation to where that was not handled well at all. Now, I understand there's going to be conflict in families. This is not a message, because I have couples come to me, families. How do we learn not to fight? And I go, you tell me. You figure it out, let me know, I'll retire. Because it's not about getting rid of arguing or disagreeing. It's about how you handle it. A life is not about a life free of conflict. It's free of toxic conflict. Many of what we grew up in is toxic conflict. We disagree. We have differences of opinions. We're different personalities. But yet, it's not an excuse to go towards a toxic way of doing anything. So where does this all start? I want to stop from this story for right now. And we go back to the garden. Everything starts at the garden. And they're in the perfect situation. And Satan comes along and says to Eve, what are you, why aren't you eating from this tree? Because yeah, God said if we die, <laughs> God's just trying to stay superior to you. He knows that if you eat of this, you're going to be like him. He's kind of cutting you out of the deal. See, in, in this story, what we're coming here is it's not so much the outside forces in this world that's declared war on your family. It's Satan himself. And so we know the story. She eats from the fruit of the tree. Adam eats from the fruit of the tree. God. Now understand what happens, and we're going to get more into this later. They hide from God. And God comes in like, oh, I play hide and seek with my granddaughters, and I know they're right there, but I, where are you? And they come out. And, of course, we know the story. They start Great marriage counseling situation. This woman you gave me, well, I was tricked. I was tricked into it. But God gives a very important thing for our message today. When he's talking to Eve, he says, you, your desire will be for your husband, and he will have rule over you. Now, here comes the preacher out of me. When you look up that word desire in the Hebrew, it's the same root word that comes dominate. Your desire is to dominate him. And he turns around and says the same thing to the, about the husband. No, it's not just not an anti-woman thing. He's going to take his domination and rule over you. None of that is good. Because at the heart of a, this is the therapist coming. I'm going to switch back and forth, I promise you. In therapy, what we talk about is all relationships is usually either a strive to dominate or be dominated. An inferior setting or a superior setting, either one is wrong. 
and Satan is throwing, coming in and throwing the little, you know, monkey wrench into your relationship. He just wants to roll over you. Hey, 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 you better, you better fawn over him. You better do what he says or he's going to be mean to you. And no one trusts anyone. We see this struggle. So because we see this because this leads to toxic conflict. And there are very many types of conflicts. Now we're getting into, there's, of course, marriage conflict. There's political conflict, personality conflict. And the new thing we're starting to look into right now, generational conflict. Facebook is an interesting thing. Now, what's great about this, this message is we could look at Facebook. Because I have a saying I like to say to people. May your life be as great as you make it to be on Facebook. I promise you the Little League in Blue Ridge, Texas has never lost a game. Because they might go two or three weeks without saying anything because they lost all those games. They only report it when we win. So may your life be as good as you make it out to be on Facebook. But one of the things I enjoy watching, I watch everybody on Facebook, by the way, as a therapist. These young people, generation people. And I went, you forgot that I used to sit next to you in class. When you talked about sneaking out every Friday night, waiting until your parents fell asleep, you weren't scared of your parents. You, if you listen to some people, the teenagers of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s were the most respectful, law-abiding, honoring, God-fearing generations in the history of mankind. Now, I joke about that. Every older generation since the beginning of time has complained about the younger generation. You young people someday will be my age. And those disrespectful teenagers, I don't get their music, I don't get their clothes, I don't get everything. You're going to do the same thing your parents are doing to you. This is just cycles. But now we're seeing a generational war happen. My generation's better than your generation. And Satan sits back and he smiles. The political discord, the gender discord, the generational discord, he don't care where it comes from. He just loves discord. Now, in terms of our families, we're going to look at this today because that leads to toxicity in our conflicts. Kids, your parents are going to drive you nuts. You don't have to shake your head. Parents, your kids are going to drive you nuts. You can say amen to that. Husbands, your wife's going to get on your nerves. <laughs> Wives, your husband. Anyway, but let's look at some of the things that cause conflict here. Now, this is therapy coming out right now. What's a good way not to argue? Now, pastor, asked, pastor took all my good notes last week. I helped him with last week. He took all my good notes, so I'm left with everything else, but we're going to do this. Personification. What is personification in an argument? You are a lazy bum. <laughs> You're an ungrateful 
No, he's not. Many times in our discussions with couples in my office, we get to the toxicity. Satan is loving this. This woman you gave me, you're a lazy pig. Why'd you do that? You call a child dog long enough, guess what? They begin to act like a dog. How many of you ever changed anybody's mind in an argument by calling them a lazy pig? Husbands, let's do an experiment when you get home. Call your wife a bad name and see if she's happy. We think that if I could just call them a bad name. Actually, there's a study on types of arguing. Do you know what the lowest basis form of arguing is? It's the sign of, and I'm just, this is what research shows, sign of immaturity and a weak argument. Name calling. Whenever the person, negative name calling is a sign of immaturity and a weak argument. And that's unchristlike too. We focus on the person and not the action. Now, your husband may have done something lazy. What you did was lazy. You focus on the verb, the action, not the person. My child, you not cleaning your room was very irresponsible. Instead of, you're an irresponsible brat. You can never take words You're just like your mother. You're just like your father. You can ask forgiveness all you. There's no such thing as forgive and forget. So we look personification, name calling. Now, Pastor hit on this a little bit last week, and I can't avoid it. Many times when we deal with each other, we're more in, in a toxic situation. You're more into humiliation than humility. There is a difference between humiliation and humility. If you are punishing your child so that they are humiliated, you're causing damage. If you're punishing your child to bring God-given humility to their life, you are teaching them, you're training, you are disciplining them. Humiliation is of Satan, humility is of God. And so when, you know, you know Johnny, you did... Johnny again, he's back from last week. Humil- you, Johnny, you're going to be punished for this. I'm sorry. I, I don't want, you know, I, I wish I didn't have to punish. I don't want to punish. I, I know you can do better than this. Humiliation puts them under your foot and says they, can't, they have no hope. Humility says there is a God that can change your behavior and you have that possibility. That's humility. Huge difference. Someone yelled out shame. Humiliation leads to shame. And everything about the Garden of Eden was shame, folks. When they discovered they were naked after they ate from the fruit, my personal opinion here, had nothing to do with them having no clothes on being naked. They had lost the covering and the glory of God which was their protection. So when they suddenly realized they were naked, it went, oh, we have no clothes. They didn't know what clothes were. They didn't know the difference. What they did know the difference is what they had before, the covering of God upon their lives. And now it was gone. 
And then when you don't have the protection of God, you start get feeling a little vulnerable. You attack other people. So we look at this as we, we look at this whole situation of this shaming turns that person in your life automatically against you. Why do we have conflict in our families? Why, how does Satan do this so well? He brings shame into our relationships. One other reason I think, and this is maybe new. If you took my relationship class a while back, you, you've heard this, so pretend you heard it for the first time. High expectations on people in your life. Kids, your parents aren't perfect. Parents, your kids aren't perfect. Husbands and wives, same thing between you. I love premarital counseling, particularly when it's a young couple. The fools. Clayton, I'll ask him about arguing. Our plan is not to argue. We are the greatest story of romance since that of Romeo and Juliet. They died at the end of that. I had a wonderful couple come to me for premarital counseling. My job as a premarital counselor is to get them to fight in my office. I get, they, this girl said, oh, no, we, we just don't argue. We're not doing that. I'm like, okay. What does she do that annoys you? What does he do to annoy you? And then they start, look, what? I didn't know that annoyed you. How many kids do you plan on having? Oh, we're only going to have one. No, we're going to have five. And then I get to see how they fight. Oh, no, it's my way or the highway, honey. Oh, no, it's not. I said, yeah, you're never going to argue once you're married. You're, that's not going to happen. The problem is we have these high expectations of our relationships. You think that guy you're marrying is going to be the knight in shining armor for all time. The armor rusts. You think that beautiful bride that you have is always going to wake up in a great mood, just completely put together for you and just happy and chirpy and just willing to do everything you say. No. High expectations are the results of past hurts and other relationships that you're putting on your new person. That old boyfriend hurt me, so I'm going to up the expectation of my new husband. And you put a high expectation on him that no man could fit. You put an expectation that's too high on your wife and no woman could fit that expectation. And when they don't meet it, the greater the fall. High expectations destroy relationships. You expect your children to be perfect. There was, I will not name the cartoon, there was a cartoon several decades ago that was a Christian cartoon. And it was based on the family. The kids were perfect. They never back-talked. They never sassy. They did their chores the first thing. And I'm like, well, who wrote this? The parents always did it. They never argued. They never disagreed with each other. That's a fantasy world. And when we grow into this fantasy world, we turn into Facebook people where we only put this facade 
up front that my life's perfect, but behind the scenes, it's horrible. Expectations cause toxic behavior in relationship. When I have a woman that's sitting in my office and said, I never thought my husband would ever do that, greater the fall. The greater the bitterness that enters through a relationship. Satan loves saying, oh, man, all women are supposed to be like this. All men are supposed to be like this. Your children are supposed to be perfect little angels in church and never get in trouble. And then when they don't meet that, it turns into a family circus. Because you have to blame somebody. Now, we need to work on relationships. Brother Dennis, you, you mentioned a scientific research study. I want to piggyback on that one. Recently, Harvard just came out with their new update of a research that was started in 1938. They're still doing the research program. They have interviewed thousands and thousands of Americans since 1938, and when they die, they go to their children and grandchildren and so on. It's called the Happiness Research Project. What makes people truly happy, and what does happiness do for them? It comes from Harvard. It's got to be true. They're, I'm giving you the, I bought the book. I read the whole book. I'm giving you the, yeah, the best parts. They've discovered, and this is not going to shock anyone, that those people who are more, and actually they said more joyful than happy, live longer, live healthier. Now, outliers are genetics. Some people are genetically supposed to disease and things like that, or some people are genetically you know, presupposed to healthy living. They have to put that aside. They did blood tests, family history, and everything. But putting all that aside, people who could report joyful living lived longer, lived healthier, showed more satisfaction and content with their life. Now, they gave examples of certain people, and there's a guy who was a very rich man who was a very successful lawyer, always sick and died young estranged from his family. Another man who wanted to be, uh, wanted to uh, go into a, a certain field, but World War II stopped him from doing it, and after World War II, he just, he had to support his family, became a teacher. He didn't get rich. Um, basically, middle-class life, but he was happy. He said his greatest joy in life was when former uh, students of his come and say, hey, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. I finished college. He got joy. He lived well into his 80s, spry as all get out. So there's something to this. But what makes a person joyful? They took all this data to see the common denominator in all these people who proved successful in this. It comes down to one word, folks, relationships. Those who reported contentment, joy, in the relationships with their families and friends reported more joy than anybody else. Is it any wonder why Satan wants to throw the monkey wrench into your relationships? It not only can cost you spiritually, it can cause you physically, it can hurt your health, and it hurts your family's health as well. This is why Satan has declared war on all of this. Now, let's look at the answer to this. I presented you the problem. Now let's talk about answers. I want to first look at the family structure. Now, I understand, I understand there's some single parents in here. 
I understand there are people who don't have parents right now. I, I, you know, we can all work on our relationships. But I want to look at this. First of all, who's supposed to be number one in your life? Okay, God, thank you. That's a given. Now I'm going to hack some people off. Because I've had moms, for the most part, really come after me in my office for saying what I'm about to say. I still believe it. I'm just scared of moms attacking me. The number one, if you are a, you know, kind of like the traditional husband, wife with kids, the next most important priority relationship in your life is not your children. It's your spouse. I've had husbands complain about it too. Now, everyone's saying amen. Trust me, I had a woman just about kill me for saying that. I would never put anything above my children. You bet. First of all, you put all that emphasis on your children. Does everybody know the three most obvious times that you're going to get a divorce in a marriage? The highest points? First two years, seven-year itch, empty nested. And that number is skyrocketing now. Because if a couple says it's all about our children, that's what's most important. They put no investment in each other. And when the last one leaves the house, they look at each other and go, who are you? They just lost the emphasis that they've had for 20, 25 years. They have nothing to build on. So it's natural, like, well, the kid left. What do we have here? I'm telling everyone in here right now, your number one relationship outside of God that's in your life, if you are married, should be your spouse before your children. Now, making your kids that actually boosts them higher. Being number three behind God and your spouse, number three is much higher than making them number one. And let me tell you something. Show your kids that you love them. Show your kids that you love your spouse. Now, Faith and Andrew are sitting down here. They're not supporting me. They're worried I'm going to tell stories. And Andrew will come up and tackle me if I start telling an unacceptable story about him. So, but I loved irritating my children. Because they would be in the living room and I would come in and I would plant the biggest kiss on their mother. And what did you, how do you think their response was? Uh, don't care. Go to your, go to another room behind a closed door to do that. They asked me this question one time. I can't remember, one of the girls, what did you notice about mom when you met her? She was the hottest girl I ever saw in my life. Still is. She's right over there. Hot, hot. It's beautiful. I'm winning brownie points for today. <laughs> I'm getting a good lunch today. Now, I understand, I was joking. I just, <laughs> I think one daughter asked when they were all going out, what are you going to do tonight when we're gone? I said, oh, I'll probably just kiss around on your mom. Now, joking, now some people, that might, I don't know if that's inappropriate for your, my thing is, so many parents have no problem name-calling, arguing, yelling, 
insulting each other in front of their kids? Why are we so upset about kissing each other in front of our children? Showing love to each other. The greatest security that you will give your child knowing that mom and dad love each other. Because they're, they'll go gross, but they get a security. They'll go gross, but it's something that, now that's not too high. Their appropriate expectation for their spouse is love then. You're being an example. Now understand, all this is about proving, this all represents God's relationship to us, the way we treat each other. Science again. The moment you are born, only 10% of your neurons are your bra- in your brain are turned on. Only 10%. And that's enough to keep you breathing and, you know, your body functions, your brain functions to keep, for you to be alive. Only 10% of your neurons are turned on when you're born. When you're born, what's the first thing they do to you? But where do, where, where do they take you? Huh? They put you in your mother's arms. Now, this is scientific. They've, they've studied this. The moment that mom holds them and starts talking to them, neurons start turning on. They have, they've watched it on a computer. It's like Times Square suddenly comes on. Their neurons start firing up. Uh, they, then you, the dad, dad, come talk to your kid. Hey, baby, how you doing? Neurons shooting off like crazy. It's the healthiest. When you're born, your brain is automatically looking for relationship. Same thing in the garden. What is one of the, I always said this in sermons, like on, in, in marrying somebody, but let's take this little phrase. It says, it's not good that man should be alone. That's just not about marriage. You were created, your brain, brain's greatest invention God ever made. He created it for relationship. When you decide to isolate yourself from other people, whether they be family or friends, your neurons start to die out. Ever watch a movie about someone who's a hermit or deserted on an island? They go crazy. Or they start talking to a volleyball. (laughs) Don't laugh. He saved his sanity. You were created not just for relationship, but for healthy relationship. And unfortunately, when children get neglected, when children get abused, when spouses begin to fight and ignore each other, your neurons start to die. There's, I did not, if you are in my, there's a video, and I wasn't going to show, it's a research called the Still Face Project. Still Face Project. And in this project, they, this is a famous one, if you're in, counseling psychology. Everyone has to watch this. A mother playing with her one-year-old daughter. Oh, baby, how are you thinking? And the baby's gurgling. She then has to turn around, turn back around, and for two minutes, still face. Do not respond to your child at all, no matter what they do. Now, if you're in my pain from pain to purpose class, trauma class, Wednesday night, you're going to see this video. Because we're going to study a two, this is called attunement. It's about how it heals trauma, too. The baby. Wait a second. What happened here? The baby starts to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Boy, yeah, see, what you really, 
Hey, look at me. Hey, I'm going to perform for you. I'm going to perform for you. Then the baby begins to rebel. Throwing up, throwing a fit, trying to get out of the seat. Distress. Now, this is all done under a, you know, specialist. Mom stops. She starts cooing. The baby, woman grew up. The baby grew up. They're all fine. But what it showed is that still face, we are meant for relationship. I got to preach it myself here. That's why silent treatments are horrible in relationship. You ever want to know? Kids do one or two things. If you do not attune emotionally with them, they'll either become people pleaser trying to get your approval, and that's very unsafe going on into adulthood, or they'll rebel. If I can't get your attention doing the right stuff, I'll get your attention doing the wrong stuff. And so we look at this is called attunement, emotional attunement. Folks, let me tell you something. If you want to brighten up your family, I used to teach a class for people getting a divorce and had kids, and I was giving them how to handle kids. It was a book about that thick. It was a four-hour class. I said, if you only learn two things from this class, this is going to help you in a relationship with your family. Number one, love them. Duh. Now, understand, love is divided into two ways. You tell them. I love you. I'm making it up to you for being someone. I love you. They need to hear the words. Spouses, you need to say, I love you. Faith, I love you. Okay, so love and show. You can say you love them all the way. If you don't show them, mm. I even think you can show them. You need to tell them. Words are powerful. The next one, this is the important one. Emotional attunement. You interact with them. Look them in the eye when you talk to them. You smile. Open door policy. Son, daughter, husband, wife. You can come talk to me about anything you need to talk about. Number one complaint I get from my teenager sees, I can't go talk to my parents. So the minute I go talk to them, judgment. I'm in trouble. You can't think that way. We don't get sad in this family. We don't get mad in this family. We don't get scared in this family. What am I feeling? You want to knock off the emotional attunement? Deny them that. You open door. Now, I may not like what you say, but if you say it in a respectful way, I can live with that. Don't change my mind, maybe. Maybe you will. But let me tell you something. If you do that at five, They'll do it at 15. That's when you really aren't going to get idiots at school that I give them advice that you won't give. So we do that, and we, we, oh, my goodness. Now, understand, here's the wonderful thing about attunement. For all you trauma people coming to my class on Wednesday night, pretend like you never heard it before when you come over there. Attunement represents worship. Why? Because attunement is what we do with God. I connect with God. God connects with me. God gives me this feeling of joy. When you're worshiping him, you're attuning with God. You are getting, he's, he's like, hey, man, I'm here. I'm here worshiping with you. I'm looking you in the face. I'm interacting with you. And you're going, you know, why do we feel good after we worship? Oh, my goodness, because there's a relationship. 
You're attuned. You're happy. You're joyful. Oh, my goodness. If, if we view God as being someone who turns his back, we become that little child throwing a temper tantrum or disobeying. Let me tell you something. This is so important because so, this leads to vulnerability. Remember what I said about Adam and Eve. In the garden, they felt vulnerable. Definition of vulnerability is lack of safety when you're exposed. About to encourage you folks. You cannot escape vulnerability. To be alive and to be in a relationship is vulnerability. You are exposing, when you get married, you're exposing yourself to the possibility of being hurt. That's how we handle vulnerability. But if you're emotionally attuned with each other, hey, doesn't look good. Even our mistakes can be overcome when there's emotional attunement. Because God wants to be emotionally attuned with each and every one of us. And when we do this, we teach our children and we teach each other, this is what God is like. Fathers, moms, teach your child what kind of parent God is. Kirk Thompson, who I follow a lot, he's the one that got me onto vulnerability and shame. He tells a story of a woman that came to him. I want you to start seeing my husband as a client. He won't go to church. Kirk Thompson goes, what do you want me to do about it? Well, just talk to him. So bitter. So bitter. So husband comes in. Kirk Thompson talks to him, and he finally comes out with this story. And this should scare a lot of you. He said, I grew up in Minnesota. And it gets gets cold in Minnesota in wintertime, right? He said, my father growing up had this thing about us washing our face with warm water. One day I'm coming downstairs from my bedroom as a little boy. I said, did you wash your face with warm water? He goes, yes, sir. Let me go check. Puts his hand in the sink. That's cold. Follow me. They go outside. They lived out in the kind of country in Minnesota. There's a stream, middle of December, negative 10, 20 degrees. Take your clothes off. Sit in the middle of that stream. 10 minutes while I read scripture to you. Boy comes out and says, you're going to forget to wash with warm water again? No, sir, I'm not. And then the man tells Kirk Thompson, so when my wife and everybody tells me about a loving heavenly father, can't blame them. I've never We are the representatives of God to the other people in our lives, no matter what role we fit. We represent, if you call yourself a child of God in the way you interact with someone, represents to them who God is. You carry your love from yourself and, you know, because, you know, one thing about my dad, my dad would cry in front of me. If I were your son, you'd cry too. But he cried at the altar. My dad would punish me and then go out and play ball with me. He didn't humiliate me. He taught me good humility. But he always said, you know what, son, I'm just trying to teach you to be a man of God. Because I know you can hit that. And I'm only trying to get you there. He always ended every punishment with, 
I love you. And he showed it. It wasn't fake. So we look at this vulnerability and this attunement. Folks, let me tell you something. We need to be connecting with each other. Now, understand, this is not about you going home and telling your spouse, telling your kids, or telling your parents, see how you've messed up, you need to do better. That is not the focus of this message. This message is for you to look in the mirror and see what do I bring to the circus? What am I doing? Even if you're the, I'm in the right, Clayton. I said, have you ever tried to control somebody else? You can't do it. The only person you have control of changing is you. And God can use that to carry over and convict someone else to change their bad behavior. Now, that doesn't mean you put up with abuse. It doesn't mean you go and stay in an unsafe situation. Do not. Any, all the ministers in the past that you said, well, you got to just get hit for God. No. For those of you who are in situations that, Clayton, you said it was a circus. It's not, I wish it was a circus. That would be an improvement. My heart breaks for you this morning. For those of you who think you are in an unattainable situation of ever finding, Clayton, I don't know what you're talking about, that joy, that attunement, I don't know. God knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be abused. He knows what it's like to be lied about, called names. People shut him down and ignore him. He knows all that. It doesn't make the pain any less, but you have a Savior who has experienced everything you have gone through and sinned not. And he's here saying, I am here for you to get you through this. There is joy in the midst of a circus. And here's the thing. You stop the cycle. You stop the cycle. And this is what we're going to do here. For those of you in your family, this is not about, I know pastor had everyone pray for your family. This is a singular thing. I'm not asking anybody to look toward your family members. This is something you look for in your own life. Let's go, we're closing up right now. First of all, you get your Bible out and you read the fruit of the Spirit. And you ask the Holy Spirit, Every single one. This is not like, well, I want the loving one, but I don't want that self-control. No. I am, Holy Spirit, begin to work on me with every fruit of this Spirit. Love, joy, kindness, self-control. When you start improving yourself in those areas, life's improved. Now, there's some other things. Romans, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, gonna go, I'm just going to do the Romans one. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Listen to this. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. We read that. We go, well, of course, everybody outside of our church, we're going to do that. Why do we only focus on people outside of our lives and doing that? If we should be doing it with anybody, it should be doing it with family members. 
Love with sincerity. Hope prayerfully. Boy, I did one thing one time. You, you want to make someone mad? There's someone you're having problems with. I do this. Think about the person you can't stand most in this world. Think of them right now, everyone. Think about, oh, I can't stand this person. Political figure, movie star, next door neighbor, person sitting next to you right now. Think about that person. Everything that bugs you about them. Oh, I can't stand them. Your assignment, pray for them every day. And don't, Lord, strike them dead. No. <laughs> and I'm not even saying for you to say, Lord, change them. Pray, Lord, I pray blessings on them. You want the ultimate sign of Christian maturity? But Clayton, I feel so fake doing that. Holy Spirit won't allow you to stay fake when you're doing it. Lord, I pray blessings upon them. Lord, I pray right now for blessings on my wife. I pray blessings on my husband. I pray blessings on my children. I know we pray, but sometimes we don't feel like it. Do that. And even Romans goes on to say, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, even family members. As much as it what? Depends on you. Well, Clayton, they called me a name. So I'm going to call them a name. How immature can we get? Because that's what Jesus said. Call those who call you names the same name or even worse. It does not say that. Bless those who curse you. We, we look at all this, and I want to, this is what I'm going to close in here before we, before we go to prayer. Ephesians 4 says this, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Working on relationships in this way is a life worthy of your call. You are called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Live like it. Be completely humble and gentle, even when you're punishing your children. Even when you're mad at your spouse, be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Some of us go into a relationship declaring war. Superiority versus inferiority. I'm not going to bow down to somebody else. Inferiority, I don't want anybody mad at me, so I'm going to just do whatever they say to me. Just as unhealthy as the other one. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Four F's of fear and vulnerability. Vulnerability is the emotion that eats your soul if you don't handle it correctly. I'd like everyone to stand. And like I said earlier, pastor has had families get together to pray for this. But right now, what I am wanting to do is just to be a singular event. Definitely not against families praying together. But before you ever go and pray with family, this is going to be a moment right now that when we go to the Lord in prayer in a minute, I'm going to ask everyone to look in that spiritual mirror. 
None of us are perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You've made mistakes. Parents, we've made mistakes. If you cannot admit you've made a mistake as a parent, you're not being real. Kids, you're going to make mistakes. Husbands, wives, you're going to do stupid things to each other. We're not perfect, and we're probably going to do some imperfect things in the future. But let's not make it easier. Let's not feed that. Most bis- misbehavior, I'm going to say this thing before we go. When people come sit in front of me and we're talking about dysfunctionality, I'll say, what, what is that person doing that annoys you? And they go, I had a guy one time go, my wife makes me check in every hour at work. And if an hour goes by and I haven't called her, she blasts my phone. And if I don't answer, I'm in trouble. I said, okay, does that bother you? <laughs> yeah. I'm not being a mean with my boss, with a client, whatever. So I asked him the question, why do you think she does that? Because she's a nag. No, that's name calling. What do you think she fears? See, dysfunctional behavior tends to come from overcompensation of what we fear. So we go through a history of his wife. At 12, she was abandoned by her father, hurt and abandoned by some boyfriends, and married him. So she puts high expectations from past hurt on a new person. And so she fears abandonment. Now, in your reaction to her fear of abandonment, do you feed that fear or you speak to it? How do you respond? I tell her to shut up or I don't answer her phone at all. Does that feed that fear of abandonment? You bet. How can we speak to those fears? Let's let the Holy Spirit work in this situation. So he sits down and he says, honey, we've been married 15 years. I'm not leaving. Even in the most valley moments of our marriage, I'm here. Didn't fix it overnight. A few months later, he comes back. I only talk to her once or twice a day now because he spoke to the fears that's bo- that person that's bothering him in the family. They didn't feed him. Sometimes the devil tricks us into feeding a problem. Oh, you, you fear abandonment? I'm going to make you feel abandoned. You fear my temper? I'll get you a lot of good dose of it. Those are things we control. Things we control. I want right now, as we go to the Lord in prayer, that you be honest with yourself. And if you pray this, I tend to think the Holy Spirit answers this prayer. Show me something in my life that I'm leaving. And it may not be complete. You might have had the worst father in history, the most neglectful mother, the most honorary sibling, but you're still only responsible for you. Lord, show me what I need in my life to handle this circus. I challenge you, and we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, right now, I pray right now over every single person in here. Relationship is important. Lord, right now, I know this is a different message. But, Lord, I'm tired. I've seen families come into my office who have declared World War III. They're the nicest people to strangers, but with each other, they cannot get along. I want that to stop. 
There may be someone in here right now, Lord. They're praying right now. Maybe there's tears in their eyes. And their family, what they're going home to from this church situation is hell on earth. Protect them. And I pray, send your Holy Spirit to give them wisdom. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit to help them. Lord, there may be a child here listening to this message whose parents are emotionally tuned out from them. And they're like that little baby trying to get their attention, wanting to emotionally connect. And Lord, right now, I pray right now, that our strength comes from you. Pray this right now. Lord, I thank you. Your precious name. Before I hand it over to Sister Liz, thank you for putting up with me, first of all. I'm sweating. I wore a jacket. Don't get used to it. I ain't wearing a jacket anymore unless I'm preaching. I know I did a lot of joking, but it's also a serious conversation. There are people probably in here that we don't even realize. They put on the happy face. Everyone has a story, folks. Your story is not my story. My situation is different. I came from a family of two kids. I was the baby, big gap. I was an only child for my teenagers. Faith was number eight of nine. You talk about personality difference with me. I never shared a bathroom a day in my life. And then a woman comes in and puts makeup everywhere. But she's hot. Anyway. <laughs> Folks, I leave you with this. And I just, this is where I think, I, I was about to hand it over to Liz. And I said, God just hit me with, Clayton, you need to say this one more time. Blame God, not me. Love. Peace. In your dealings with them. Yes, parents, I know you have authority over your children. Authority is different than superiority. Live in a support. Superiority does not have love. Authority is done in love. Peace. Humility. I'm the authority of my family, but that's a humble thing. If you don't approach it with humility, you're not, you're just doing superiority, not authority. Christ had authority, and he was all about love. Folks, let me tell you something. And I, this does not fix your home life necessarily. But what it does is allows the Holy Spirit to work through you. Holy Spirit works through you. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Liz, here comes the better person right here is Liz. I would have carried that for you.